Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. Welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. The latest thing that's been going on in college football uh, over the past a few weeks has been the Jim Harbaugh Michigan sign-stealing scandal. I just want to uh, talk about that for a few minutes today, review the details on it, give you my opinion on it. I also talk a little bit about high school and uh, about stealing, stealing signs. And then talk uh, about a summer scandal, not exact, but a summer scandal uh, that happened back into the 1960s. So, first of all, uh, a few weeks ago, it came out that a man named Connor Stallions, who was an analyst on the Michigan University of Michigan uh, football staff, and I believe he, he worked um, with the defense, he had been uh, in an operation stealing signals from other teams that Michigan was going to play. Uh, Stallions was a 28-year-old ex-Marine who apparently had worked some on the uh, Navy coaching staff, got involved with Michigan as a volunteer originally because he loved Michigan football and apparently uh, knew one of the defensive coaches on the Michigan staff. Over three seasons, Stallions had purchased tickets to over 30 Big Ten games uh, involving 12 different Big Ten schools, all of them on Michigan schedule, as well as four other games that involved college football playoff contenders, uh, such as Georgia, Alabama, and so forth, because of the fact that Georgia thought they were going to be in the playoffs, as they were, and uh, he he was going to those games. His purpose in attending the games was apparently to get the signals of these teams, particularly when they signal their offense, all right, what they were doing, signaling their offense, signaling their plays and formations and so forth. And apparently, uh, he would videotape these. The reason they would do this is that they could get these signals and they could take the film of the game and match the signals up with each play of the game, and they could figure out what their signal system was. Is that an advantage? Well, absolutely it's an advantage. Because if they signal the play over there, and I'm watching and I know their signals, I could, for example, stand by the defensive coordinator or be in the press box and tell the defensive coordinator what the play is they're running. And he can signal his defense with a defensive scheme that would be good against that play. Would that be an advantage? Absolutely, it would be an advantage. That's what was going on, and apparently he had hired other people to go to games, to videotape the signals, give the information, of course, uh, back to him. When I first heard this, my first question was, who's paying for it? Because if you're buying tickets 
and you've got other people involved and you're paying them, there's a decent amount of money involved in all this. He was on the Michigan staff. And because he was on the Michigan staff, my first thought was, well, maybe they're paying him enough money of what he's making to pay for all of this. I didn't think that was likely, but that's certainly a, a possibility. Since that time has come out that there were booster, at least one booster that they know of, who was involved in paying off some of this. So that was basically what they were doing. And again, he had other people going and doing this at different games. There are also numerous pictures of him standing on the sideline. There are pictures of him and video of him standing by the the Michigan defensive coordinator and talking to him. Let me just say that that suggests that if he's talking to the coordinators, okay, on the sideline, that he is decoding the signals and telling them what the play is. And because he's doing this, he's, he's, you know, Michigan kind of sounded like to start with, they wanted to say, well, this is just a random guy who went out on his own and did this. Well, that's ludicrous. You know, he's standing by the defensive coordinator during some of the games. They even have um, uh, pictures of him being on the Central Michigan sideline when they were playing Michigan State. So they have they have video. And by the way, they also have the testimony of at least one of the people he hired, what he was told to do and what he did and so forth. And um, we'll talk about the NCAA investigation here in just a minute. It was going to be hard for Michigan just to claim this is the crazy guy. They got him on staff. All right? He's on the payroll. He has a job with them. He purchased tickets off Internet sites like StubHub, um, which doesn't seem to be very smart to me if you're, if you're going to uh, go to games. And by the way, it, it is and has been since 1994 against NCAA rules, to do live scouting. Let me just talk about live scouting for a minute. Live scouting means you actually go to the game, you sit up the stands, you write down all the information that you can about this team, their plays, their defense. Uh, if you can figure some of their signals out, you could have to do some of that kind of stuff. They quit doing that in 1994. In high school, uh, we always live scouted when we could. We just can't do very much of it because everybody plays on Friday night. But sometimes somebody would play on a Thursday night or a Saturday night even or something back in the old days. And we would we would go scout the game and we would write down, you know, the plays, the formations, example of their offense, and, and write all that stuff down. And we would sit over there, usually on their side, kind of listen to the crowd, um, uh, uh, look at what was going on behind their bench. And occasionally they were signaling something. If we could figure out some of the signals, that would that would be great. So, but it doesn't seem to be very smart if you are on the Michigan staff and you're buying tickets to games and there's a rule against scouting. So, obviously, Michigan was in violation of this NCAA rule and in more than one occasion, so for over the course of three years. Like I said, Stadiums had to travel, he had to buy tickets, he had to do this, he had to pay people off. So this ended up being a pretty um, extensive operation that they had going here to steal signals of the other team. Everybody's got a job as an analyst during the game. And before I get into that, let me just say this. If they're stealing signals, it doesn't do any good 
to steal the signals if the defensive coordinator doesn't know because he's the one calling the defense. Obviously, he knows. And everybody's got a job during the game. So Stallions, what's he doing during the game? Well, he's down there by the coach. Well, when they have defensive meetings and the analysts are in there with the assistant coaches and they're game planning, Stallions' job, a lot of times, he's dealing with, with, with this, situ- this situation. And what's he doing during the game? Well, if his job during the game is to stand by the defense coordinator and get signals, well, everybody in the room knows that. So everybody in the room knows that he knows their signals. And everybody knows that's, that's his job. That's w- what his job is. They may not know all the details of how he's getting it done, but surely there's been times where they had a game against somebody and he was gone. It just doesn't make sense when they say, when they start talking about these guys, start talking about that they didn't know anything. Like the linebacker coach who resigned, actually was fired, and he was fired because they said that he tried to cover up some stuff on the computer. He tried to take stuff off the computer. So they fire him. Couple of weeks later, he comes out and says, "Hey, that wasn't it. I wasn't doing that, and I didn't know anything about it." He didn't know anything about it. You got to be kidding me! Surely he knew something about it, and uh, certainly what was going on with this. And I thought it was interesting that they fired him. But when the, this first came out, Stallions, they didn't fire him. They put him on paid leave. Why you put the guy on paid leave is. You want to keep paying him in some way as long as you can because he knows stuff that is damaging. When they fired him, they had to officially quit paying him. But I can almost guarantee you somebody somewhere has paid him off because when the NCAA tried to speak to him, he refused to talk to them. Which brings up another point that Michigan had said that they had fully cooperated with the NCAA investigation. Well, they got folks who won't talk to him. So they haven't fully cooperated. So, you know, the whole thing is uh, just kind of seedy from the, the whole, uh, whole whole deal. The fact that Jim Harbaugh claims that he doesn't know and did not know is ludicrous. He hired the guy. What is this guy's job? What is it, this guy's doing? The coordinators know. Everybody in the defensive room knows. And Harbaugh hired him. So, he had, and the guy didn't have credentials to be hired as an, an analyst. He didn't know, apparently, no one of the coaches. But outside of that, they hired him because he was good at stealing signals. And Harbaugh knows this. The fact that they talk about that, that they all act uh, innocent, like we didn't know anything about it, uh, that's ludicrous. Uh, can you imagine walking in the defensive room with the defensive coaches and the analysts and getting together and their game planning? And Harbaugh walks in the, the door, and there's a guy there. He, he doesn't really know who he is or why we hired him. Can you imagine Nick Saban walking in a room, and there's a guy in there he doesn't know who he is, doesn't know what he does? So the, this, this whole idea uh, that, that nobody knew anything about this is just, um, is just crazy. Now, the Big Ten has not done an investigation, and the, the Big Ten got their information from the NCAA. And it's my understanding they didn't get all the information and that the NCAA has much more documentation and much more uh, on uh, the whole uh, sign-stealing deal, 
it will be, oh, surely at least into the spring, well into the spring before the, ends, the results of the NCAA investigation comes out. But all indications are that they will have much, much, much more information than what has been released up to this point and that it's going to look worse and worse for Michigan. So when all this came out, if you'll notice the some that they asked two or three of the Big Ten coaches about it, and and some of them had some comments to make. I remember the uh, coach from Purdue not being very happy at all, and and for a day or so they commented on. It. Then all of a sudden there was radio silence. So apparently the Big Ten conference put the word out to the other coaches, you know, not to speak, do not be speaking about this. Uh, Michigan certainly had a chance to go to the playoffs. They didn't want to jeopardize that and all the money that comes from that when you have a team in the big t- in in the um, in the playoffs. So, but I think there was enough backlash from the other schools and and coaches in the Big Ten that they felt like they needed to do something. So they suspended Harbaugh for those three games. And of course, Michigan denied everything. They were going to go to court and all that kind of stuff. Well, if they were going to go to court then sooner or later Harbaugh's going to have to talk some, and they didn't want him talking because they know that eventually if he talks, he's going to end up telling lies. They were never going to let that happen. It's just interesting to the depths that this has gone to. And by the way, suspending the head coach for three games so that all he does, he's not at the game. He is an offense coordinator, a defensive coordinator. Yeah, he makes the decisions sometimes about whether we're going to punt or go for it or whether we're going for one or two or whatever, or when to call timeout maybe. But they've got enough guys that can have very enough experience to handle all that and do all that. The idea that this was a big punishment, it was no punishment at all because of the fact that he's coaching during the week. He's helping them everything from plan to – uh, you know, talk to the players, motivate the players, and so forth. So the whole idea that that was a big deal, him not being at the games, that was really just a more of a show uh, than it was anything else that the Big Ten was uh, going to punish them uh, for, for for doing this. That's part of the, the deal, again, that uh, the Big Ten didn't really – I think that the only reason they did it was the outcry of the other schools. They felt like they needed or had to, to do something. Then Michigan turned around and played the victim card. And, man, that's just enough to drive everybody crazy. Michigan against the world. Everybody's out to get us. Everybody's done. So let's make some things plain here. Uh, they violated NCAA rules. Not only they violated NCAA rules, they violated some ethical rules. You can steal whatever signals you want to steal during the game. That's always been that way, high school, college, or whatever. You can do that. What you can't do is videotape the team. You can't uh, live scout, and you can't uh, plan to pair up their signals with their plays and and do that. That's that's totally unethical whatsoever. And you know, people will forgive you for cheating on recruiting every once in a while, I guess. But what they're not going to cheat uh, forgive you for is um, ethical rules like that. And so this has really infuriated a lot of coaches. Especially, can you imagine? that you played a close game to Michigan the last three years and you lost, and there's a good chance they had your signals. Okay, how would that make you feel? You're out there uh, following the rules to the best of your ability, and here's Michigan, who's supposed to be good, one of the blue bloods of football, who's out 
and involved in this. And the reason people do, the reason people cheat like that sometimes is because they know they're close or they think they're fixing to lose their jobs or they know they're close to, to success. They've got some big games they need to win. How can we get an edge on these folks? Okay, well, this is the way that they go about getting an edge sometimes. Uh, it gives them an advantage of being able to go in there and win the games, okay? So that that's the reason that they do that. Now, let me talk just for a minute uh, about um, uh, sign stealing and so forth. So it's obviously important to have their their signs, uh, their signals, uh, because of the fact that uh, you could set up your defense in a hurry to, to defend what's going on. You have to call them fast, but you, you can do that. When teams started going to fast tempo, many years ago, then they came up with signal systems. And it's the job of each school to have a signal system the other team cannot figure out during the game. It's complicated enough that that it would be very, very difficult to stand over there and watch their signals and figure out what plays they're running based on that. Now, I can tell you that when, when all this started happening 15 years ago and people started signaling things they really wanted to signal things very quickly and so you can't have long drawn out signals you had to do that uh, uh, pretty quickly and there were some people that tried to get by with doing it too simply so I'll give you an example if i hold my hand over my head and that means inside zone play and that's all i'm doing and every time i do that we run the inside zone play it's not going to take the other team long to figure that out they see the guy signaling over there if you're going to tell us what play you're running, we're going to be obligated to let our people know. All right. And so usually they would have a code that says, we think they're running inside zone. Defensive football is about recognizing formations and expecting what plays because of the formations and the motions and so forth, what plays they're going to run out of those formations. Okay. I coached 40 years. I can tell you that's what defensive football is about. So, if we know what their plays are, we got a lot better chance of defending them. Okay, I think most of you could could understand that and and figure that out. Then we got into the wristband thing, where you could put plays on a wristband, and so people, what people would do a lot of times when with that offenses is they would signal like blue four, and they would have their wristband in different colors, and they would have play number four, so that it was easy to pick up. If he gave me blue four, I'd look on the wristband, I'd see the blue. There might be 10 blue plays there. I'd pick off number four, okay, and that would be it. And a lot of times they would do that, um, signal it to the quarterback. Quarterback could huddle and give it to him, which got you out there quicker. So if you wanted to check a playoff, you could. Or they would just go from the line of scrimmage, and he would call whatever it was from the line of scrimmage. He might call blue four, blue four, and everybody would look on the wristband at blue four, and they all had to play. And we could line up in formation and run the play um, and go with it. In later years, in when I was coaching, we used wristbands, and we would use them primarily for a two-minute offense. And I used, had a wristband for the quarterback. And we just numbered ours, so I might have 80 plays on that wristband, you know, with all the different formations and plays. We don't have 80 plays, but we have uh, the same play run out of several different formations. So we might have one play on there, and it's run six or seven different ways. So we, we could have 80 plays on there. And we would just say, I just uh, number them one through 80. 
you know. And so we would signal to the quarterback, hey, number 72, and he might even call out the number to everybody else. So when we started that, we said, well, there's there's a chance here we're going to call out 72 and run a sweep, and then a few minutes later we're going to call out 72 again. Somebody's going to remember that's, that we ran sweep on 72. It may not be likely, but it's possible, so let's don't do that. So we came up with what we called the Auburn Tiger system. And I got this from another guy that was really pretty good. What we would do is we would call either Auburn or Tiger, and we would call three numbers after it. If I called Auburn and three numbers, it said pick up the first two numbers. Those two numbers are live. That's the play. So if we called Auburn 264, then the play was number 26. And we'd look on the wristband, and we'd see number 26, and we know that's the play. If we could also call that same play by calling Tiger 426, Tiger 426. And so now we pick up the last two numbers that we match Tiger with it, and that play number is still 26. Because of that and that system, we just felt like nobody would ever pick that up. So we went to the trouble of having a system that was pretty simple, but still at the same time would be difficult for, for your opponent to pick up. The only problem we ever had with that is every once in a while, they would get mixed up a little bit and pick up the wrong number, or they would look down for play number 26, and instead they'd pick up play number 25. So yeah, every once in a while we had folks uh, doing doing the wrong thing there. So, and, and let me talk just for a second about ethics about sign stealing. Again, it's the job of your opponent to have a system of signaling that's Difficult to detect. And again, sometimes they get too simple. Teams that really wanted to run fast, though, had to be pretty simple. So sometimes if if we were playing a team and they were running fast tempo and we knew it, we would go into the game thinking they're doing this pretty simply. We might be able to get their signals. And I might be able to take a couple of guys that I had who were really smart, stand on the sideline. Maybe they're sophomores that are not going to play in the game you know, unless we get a lead or something. And and we would kind of coach them up a little bit and tell them to watch the signal callers over there, and they would try to figure out their signals, you know. And we've done that before where we did. We've done that before where we couldn't figure them out. But sometimes, again, they were doing it so simply. We just thought teams were running so fast that they got to have their signals be too simple. Uh, we also knew that their teams were a lot like us. Some of those guys over there weren't rocket scientists, so they couldn't be too too complicated. So there's nothing wrong with stealing signals during a game. Um, it's been done uh, for a long time. In fact, um, you know, in baseball, when I started playing Little League Baseball, uh, you know, the third base coach signaled whether we were going to steal or whether we were going to bunt or whatever. And we had an indicator. Indicator might be he taps the top of his head. So he could give every kind of signal in the world. It meant nothing until he tapped the top of his head. He tapped the top of his head, whatever he Signal next, well, maybe it was a touch on the elbow, meant steal. If he went top of his head and then touch on the elbow, it meant steal. So we knew that in the 60s, all right, in Little League Baseball. So it's it's one of those things where where it's legal to do that. And we put that indicator in because we didn't want the other team knowing when we were going to steal or when we were going to bunt. Okay, so uh, we've we've had some strange things over the years with that. Uh, I've shared before, I think, that um, in the playoffs in uh, in 2000, uh, we played a team that was taking a chalkboard and writing the offensive call 
in code on the board for all their people to see. Okay, but they were doing it in code. Well, I got a couple of pretty smart guys down on the sideline over there. In fact, they were brilliant. By halftime, they've got a lot of their their signals. I mean, well, they aren't actually signaling. They've got that. They broke their code. We beat them. We beat them pretty good. We didn't win the game because we stole their signals or bro- actually didn't steal signals. We broke their code. Okay, we didn't do that. But it did help us on two or three plays in the second half. We had one big play where we intercepted a pass because we knew they were throwing the ball. And we knew approximately what, what the pass play was. That's not unethical. It's not against the rules. They should have come up with a system that we can't figure out. That was really, really their problem. Back in uh, op in... Um, 1988, my last year coaching over there, we're towards the end of the season, and we played a game one Friday night, won the game. I had sent my junior high coach, uh, Johnny Wood, to go watch Geneva play. We were playing them the next week. In those days, we were still on film. Well, the last years, we were on film, and so you couldn't uh, get the uh, the team you were playing next week. You would swap film, video. like well, In those days, it was film mostly. We would still swap film just like we always did. But you didn't get the last Friday night's game, the last game they had played. We And usually the reason for that is I would have to have my film on Monday or Tuesday show to my quarterback club or my booster club. Uh, the coach at Geneva would have to do the same thing. So we agreed to swap everything but that film. The way you find out what happened in that game that week is you would usually call whoever they played that week, that coach, and get information from him. Formations, what they did. Blah, blah, blah. It's any information they could give you. And so you would do that. The other thing would be to send someone to scout it live. And he could write down all their plays and so forth. And so Johnny did that that night. He did a good job and came back, wrote all their plays, stuff they had done. So we had on paper at least what they had done the, the week before. He also told me, they were a wishbone team in those days, and he also told me, I got about four or five of their signals I'm sure about. Okay, well, that was stuff that was going to help us too. So he gave us the signals, what the plays were. Um, I gave it to my uh, defensive coordinator. We, we we did all of that. None of that's illegal. None of that's unethical. Uh, I told my defense coordinator, you know, to get a code word with the players so that if we know, for example, we knew one of their signals was a middle screen. A middle screen, player, the quarterback dropped straight back. The backs, they were in a wishbone. The backs would scatter right or left. And the fullback would step up like he's going to block. They'd let the lineman rush through, the defensive lineman rush through, and he would turn around. We would dump the ball to him, and the offensive line could block downfield. That's the way we ran screen pass, and that's the way Geneva was running this screen pass. So I told my defense coordinator, you know, just code that stuff, these four or five things we know, so that during the game, if we see that signal, we can holler something out that'll tell, hey, they're running the middle screen. You don't really necessarily want to holler out, middle screen, middle screen, because they'll realize, okay, they got our signals. I thought we had a pretty good thing set up. So the game's going. It's a close game. We get down there towards the end of the third quarter. It's third down and something. I look over there, and I just happened to see, because I was calling the offense. I wasn't calling defense. I happened to see that they gave the signal for middle screen. And I looked down to my defense corner. I said, Hey, did you see the signal for middle screen? He was standing about 10 or 12 feet from me. You see the signal for middle screen? He said, yeah, coach, I got it. And he signaled something. 
I didn't hear any code words called. I didn't hear anybody say middle screen. I didn't hear anything. And so I said, his name was Robbie Smith. <laughs> and I said, Robbie, I said, do the players know they're fixing to run the middle screen? And he looked at me and says, what? And about that time they snapped the ball, they ran the middle screen, and they made about 40 yards. It doesn't do any good to have their code, their signs, their signals, if you can't get some information to the team out there on the field. So it's important, Senator Laird, that the players have to know some of this. So the idea that the Michigan players probably didn't know anything about this, that's probably incorrect as well. When it comes to what is unethical in high school football, there are a couple of things in particular that are unethical in high school football. All right, number one, watch another team practice. Okay, that's unethical. Okay, you, you can't go watch them practice, send somebody to watch them practice. That's, that's unethical. Uh, that does go on some. Second is videotaping another team playing or two teams playing, videotaping it. You can videotape the game if you're playing in it. But if you're not playing in the game, it's unethical for you personally to videotape that. There have been people who would want a copy of, of a game or something and they couldn't get it from either school and they would send somebody to video the game. And that would kind of be a similar thing that we're talking about with the Michigan thing here where they went and they videotaped their signals. Same thing in high school. You can't go video not only the game, but, but the coaches signaling. That's totally unethical. You cannot do anything like that. I can tell you, and, and this is strictly rumors, okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the years. The year before I got to Miller, 1988, Joel Williams was a coach, and Joel was a no-huddle, wishbone guy, and they were running a lot of read stuff. David Faulkner was a quarterback, and they were signaling. They were no-huddle signal. They didn't huddle. They would, they would signal. One coach would signal the offensive line. One coach would signal the backs and receivers, and the backs and receivers may have even huddled up some. But one coach would signal all the offensive linemen, and then they would run the play. So it was rumored that one of our opponents that year went to a game a week or two before they were going to play us, and they took a video camera, and they videoed, somebody did for them anyway, videoed our coaches signaling our plays. And then they did just like Michigan did. They took the film of the game and they matched it up with the signals and they learned our signals. And that during the game, they knew our plays because they knew our signals. That was strictly rumored. I can tell you that the offensive line coach in 1988 believed very strongly that that had occurred. That would be unethical. By the way, we won the game. It was a close game. But we won the game. In 1996, we lose a game. And about a week or so after we lost the game, had someone come to me and say, hey, just want you to know, I heard this, that the other team was listening in on the frequency of our headsets. Now, I had bought headsets and had used them that year. The, the deal 
was that these were wireless. So wireless technology had just come out. And the deal with wireless headsets that you were concerned about is that someone could pick up your frequency. These folks that I bought from guaranteed me that you could not pick up uh, the frequency that we were on. So, okay. So we went throughout the season. They didn't seem to have any problems or anything. The wireless stuff was great. Before that, you'd have to run wire everywhere. That was crazy, especially on the road. At home, it was a simpler deal, but on the road, you'd have to run wire everywhere. The wireless thing was a big deal. This person came to me a week or so after the game and said that what they had heard was that they were on our frequency and that they had picked us up on a police scanner. Now, I've heard stories where people had talked about, hey, we're on our headsets and we picked up uh, the drive through at McDonald's over here. I've heard those stories. And so I called these folks again and said, hey, I've heard this rumor that's going on. They get, no, 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 that, that can't be happening. So I said, I don't know if it's happening or not, but I'm putting them up. So we didn't use them the rest of the year. I didn't say anything to anybody. You know, if you make accusations like that without proof, uh, number one, that's that's wrong. Number two, uh, really, you sound like you have sour grapes because you lost the game. The next year, I had this headset sent back off to these folks, had them redone, and they guaranteed me there's no way they could pick them up on a scanner. About the first or second game of the year, I had um, a, a, one of our boosters. I knew he had a police scanner, and I said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go stand on the sideline and uh, get your police scanner out and see if you can pick us up. And so we actually went, it was an away game. The game starts, and about five or six minutes after the game been going on, he comes up to me and says, I got you on the scanner and hear everything you're saying. I said, okay, I appreciate that. Appreciate that information. I said, hey, do me one more favor. He said, what? I said, see if you can pick them up. Can you pick up the other team? Because they have wireless headsets as well. About five minutes later, he comes down, he looks at me and he says, I got them. He said, I can hear everything they're saying. I said, fine, put it up, put the scanner up. Go back, sit in the bleachers. Thanks for the information. We took our headsets, okay, and put those things up. The next year, I got a set of, of wireless headsets from someone else, another company, and uh, we checked, and you couldn't pick those up. So, but that was the rumor that they had picked us up on police scanners, and apparently you could do that, and so apparently that's true. So, Obviously, that would have been helpful because at the time, best I can remember, I had Coach Harden press box, and I was calling the plays, and, and when I would call the play, I would repeat it on the thing so Coach Hart could hear it. But usually, we had a live thing going on all the time anyway, so he could hear everything I was saying anyway, so he knew. He did that so he could watch the play and, and give me information about that. So anyway, that would be totally unethical to do anything like that, but... I never said anything about that. I never complained about it because, to be honest, I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't do any better job of protecting my team uh, than that. So that was that was kind of a difficult deal. But those are some of the things that, um, that can uh, occur. Can you imagine, just for a minute, if you were a Big Ten team that lost a close game to Michigan and they had your signals, can you imagine how mad <laughs> that would make people? The fact that uh, right now the Big Ten basically didn't do much, I think it sends a terrible message 
I think we we sent a, a message here that uh, we're not going to do anything to anybody who uh, violates the rules. It's going to be interesting to see what the NCAA does, uh, what they're going to do when their um, investigation is uh, complete next, and it'll be in the spring sometime. So so they may they could they can make the playoffs here, win the entire championship, and what's going to happen then? And the word that's out there is, again, there's so much stuff, there's so much information here that at the end of the day, at the very least, Jim Harbaugh will be suspended for the entire 2024 season, not only at the games, but from the team so that he couldn't have anything to do with the Michigan football program for a year. So that's one of the reasons why most people believe that as soon as the playoffs are over, January hits, Harbaugh will take an NFL job. And then when the whole thing comes down a few few months later, it would be interesting to see what the punishment is going to be for Michigan because if Harbaugh's gone, they can't suspend him for a year. Okay, he doesn't he doesn't work for Michigan anymore. So what are they going to do? They're going to take scholarships away from them, which really doesn't even have the impact it used to have because with NIL money and all, if you have some guys you wanted to sign but you don't have the scholarships, uh, through NIL money, you can get them enough money for tuition, food, and so forth and so on. So I'm not sure how that's going to that's gonna play out. But somehow they'll have to punish Michigan for this. And if it's really bad, are they going to make them go back and forfeit games? This is an issue which certainly impacted what was going on at the game. And finally, I'd just like to say this. If this stuff wasn't important, Michigan wasn't getting a lot out of this, they would have cut this out in 2021, the first year. But instead, they hired Stallion's own. They hired him to come on staff with them, which meant they were getting value out of this and they wanted to to continue it. That's just kind of a, a telltale sign about that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, what does. But believe me, Michigan is, uh, when the NCAA stuff comes out, we just believe that uh, this is going to be a scandal like we haven't had in a long time. I, I'd like to, to finish up um, this episode by talking about another scandal that we had back in the 1960s, which uh, definitely affected... Uh, the state of Alabama, and uh, the University of Alabama. In September of 1962, uh, Alabama was to start there. By, by those days, they didn't start the season in college till about the, the, the third weekend of September. Um, Alabama opened with Georgia. In September of 1962, uh, Bear Bryant was a coach at Alabama. They had a sophomore quarterback named Joe Namath, who had been, played on the freshman team, uh, freshman Warren Ellsworth in those days. He had played on the freshman team, and everybody was excited about him because he could really throw the ball. It was September of 1962. It was about a week or so before the first game. And a man named George Burnett, who was an insurance salesman, made a telephone call to a public relations firm in Atlanta. And in those days... Uh, we don't have um, anything close to the secure lines we have today. Obviously, the lines today aren't real secure. But uh, in those days, um, we had 
party lines where there would be maybe two households on one telephone line. He called this day to that building. I'm assuming that a switchboard operator, someone called him. He told them whoever it was that he wanted to speak to, Burnett did. And so she patched him in. And when she patched him in, instead of patching him into the right call, she patched him into another line. On that line, supposedly, Paul Bear Bryant, the University of Alabama football coach, talking to Wally Butts, who was the athletic director and former coach at Georgia. And they were discussing the Alabama-Georgia game, which was going to be played in a little more than a week. And supposedly, Coach Butts is giving inside information on the Georgia team to the head football coach at the University of Alabama. All right, so here's the way that came about. Supposedly, Burnett gets patched in this call, and the first thing he heard was the operator talking to Wally Butts. And this is what he heard her say. He heard her say, Coach Butts, Coach Bryant is out on the practice field right now, but they've sent someone to go get him. Do you want to wait on him, or do you want to place this call again? And supposedly Coach Butts says, I want to wait on the call. And the operator says, okay, fine. Now, here's what that was. In those days, we had what we called person-to-person calls. And the reason we had person-to-person calls is that your long-distance calls cost you money. You paid extra for them, depending upon where it went and how long you talked. I can tell you that when I first started um, um, coaching, I you know, out there and I'm paying my own phone bill and all that kind of stuff. You know, my phone bill would be about 20 something dollars a month or something like that. I didn't want my phone, my phone bill being jacked up because of my long distance calls. So when I made a long distance call, I'd call my parents or call my girlfriend or call whoever I was calling. You couldn't talk very long. You couldn't go there like we do today and talk 45 minutes or an hour. We couldn't do that. We couldn't afford it because if you talked about 10 minutes, then chances are that call would be probably cost you six or seven dollars at least. Okay, so if you did that very often, you would end up with a phone bill uh, that would be fifty or sixty dollars easy. I couldn't afford a fifty or sixty dollar phone bill in those days. So if you wanted to call someone, what you could do is dial the operator, tell them that you wanted to call this person, name that person at this number. This situation, Coach Butts would have told the operator he wanted to dial, her to dial this number and he wanted to speak person to person to Paul Bryant. Okay, that's why he would have done that. And when he did that, he would have heard the operator and if the operator would say, I have a person to person call for Coach Paul Bryant, they would have said, he's on the practice field, we'll go get him. She would have talked back and explained that to uh, Coach Butts, although chances are he heard that on the line as it was. Now, is it possible that he got patched in this call? Absolutely. It's possible that that could have happened. In fact, uh, nobody that I ever heard in this whole deal, and I've read a book, read the, the, the definitive book on this, nobody ever believed that he didn't hear the call, that he did. And he said that the reason he kept listening is Butts was a famous person in Georgia. Paul Bryant was a famous person in uh, college football. In fact, Alabama had won the national championship the year before. 
and this was right before their first game. So Burnett says, I, I just thought I'd listen a little bit to see what they were going to talk about, two famous people. And so he did, and sooner or later, Coach uh, Bryant comes on the phone, and the two start talking. And according to Burnett, once he starts listening to the conversation, he realizes that they are talking about, according to him, the Georgia team and the game coming up, and that he believes Coach Butts is giving what we would determine to be inside information to Coach Bryant. So he takes out a notepad that he had there, sitting at his desk probably, and, and started making some notes of what he was hearing. At the end of the conversation, he said, he made some statements that um, Coach Bryant would ask a question sometimes and Coach Butts would kind of act like he really didn't want to answer it, but then he would. And that at the end of the conversation, uh, Coach Bryant had asked a question and Coach Butts said, well, I don't know. They're having a scrimmage on Saturday. He said, I, I might know a little bit more after that. I'm going to go to the scrimmage. And Coach Bryant said, well, why don't I call you back on Sunday night at your house. And then the conversation ended. Now, phone records indicate that that call was made between Coach Butts and Coach Bryant on the day in question. We also have phone records that indicated that the call was made on Sunday night from Coach Bryant to Coach Butts' home. All right, now remember, Wally Butts is not the coach at Georgia. He is athletic director at Georgia. He had been the coach up through the 1960 season. And at the end of the 1960 season, he was kind of ousted as football coach, allowed to keep his athletic director's job at a nice salary, but he was bitter about losing his job as football coach. He and Paul Bryant had been friends for years. Their teams had played each other at times. It wasn't unusual for Coach Bryant and Coach Butts to talk. In this situation, after this occurred, George Burnett, the insurance salesman, talked to some of his friends and told them what he heard and asked them what he should do about it. Okay, and this is before the game. And his friends told him, you need to forget this. You need to drop this. That's two famous people. And that if you come out and try to claim this, he says, a lot of people like Wally Butts and a lot of people like Bear Bryant, and you're going to get destroyed over this. He said, you don't really have any proof. You just need to be quiet and let this go. And so Burnett decided that's what he was going to do. A week later, Alabama plays Georgia and beats them 35 to nothing. Okay, so. The season goes on, rocks along. Alabama plays. They lost one game to Georgia Tech. Uh, the, the season goes on. They end up playing in the Orange Bowl, all right, in 1960, at the end of the 62 season, on January 1st, 1963. Uh, they go to the Orange Bowl, and they play Oklahoma, and they beat Oklahoma. And Burnett said that he watched the Orange Bowl game, and he couldn't help but think about what he had heard. And he said, he got kind of upset about it and decided that maybe he ought to tell somebody about it. And so he knew a guy in the insurance business who was friends with the Georgia football coach, a guy named Johnny Griffith. He had been the coach for uh, two seasons, 61 and 62 seasons. 61 season was not a successful season for him. 62 season was not a successful season for him. They, Georgia was going through rough times. He mentioned it to 
the friend, and the friend said, well, let me talk to him. And so he gave him his notes. He took the notes and showed the head football coach at Georgia the notes and told talked to him about the phone call. Of course, the Georgia coach was livid. He was he was furious. He felt like that he had been set up and that Coach Butts was giving information to Coach Bryant that he shouldn't have. So he goes to the president of the University of Georgia, shows him that. They bring Burnett in. They talk to him. They're convinced that what he's saying is true. And so the president of the University of Georgia calls Dr. Frank Rose, who's the president of the University of Alabama, and tells him what he knows, tells him what they found out from Burnett. And so they agree to have a meeting. And so they have a meeting at the SEC offices in Birmingham. And um, Coach uh, Rose says, I don't know anything about it. I haven't talked to Coach Brian about it. I'm going to go back and talk to him and find out and see what he has to say. Uh, Frank Rose was a staunch defender of Paul Bryant as head football coach at Alabama. Now, by this time, this is uh, obviously a well in 1963. It was, uh, this was probably in January or February 1963. When Coach Bryant has a conversation with Dr. Rose, he tells him that he doesn't remember the exact days, but that he did talk to Wally Butts that there were a couple reasons that he talked to Butts. One, they were friends. But a couple of other reasons he talked to Butts is because Butts was still serving as athletic director at Georgia. He was also serving on the uh, NCAA football rules committee. And they had changed a couple of defensive rules that year that Coach Bryant said I had called him to talk to him about how that was going to be enforced and what we needed to do to change. Because he said that one of the rules was specifically limit some of the things that Alabama had been doing on defense. So he said, I had talked to him. I remember talking to him before the season about that. And it was about a week or so before the season. He said, the other thing I remember talking to him about, because he had Joe Name that was a great passer. Butts was known to be an expert on the passing game. In fact, his last quarterback at Georgia was Fran Tarkington, who went on to play many, many years in the NFL and, of course, a Hall of Famer. Butts was considered to be excellent and an expert at the passing game. And so Coach Bryant said, I just want, I, I just want to talk to him about passing game. Something. He told me some things that helped me because I wanted to be better. We wanted to be better at passing because we had – uh, a great passer in Namath. There wasn't anything unethical about that. Uh, he, if he doesn't ask about specific things Georgia's doing, Coach Bryant relayed all that to Dr. Rose. Dr. Rose wrote a official letter to the University of Georgia with the explanation there and that they would not pursue this anymore. So Georgia's deciding at the time what's going to go, what they're going to do and how they're going to respond to this. And interestingly enough, Rumors had started swirling everywhere that something was up, that there was scandal thing going on here between two SEC schools. So we know how rumors go about, how they, they, they get about. This was 1963. Uh, you don't have the Internet. You don't have social media and all that kind of stuff, and it's still getting around. So in those days, newspaper reporters, more than anybody else, the television reporters were important, but newspaper reporters had the real power in the sports world in those days. And so there was talk among the newspapers and some of the, the writers what was what was happening, what was going on. 
in March of 1963, the Saturday Evening Post publishes, in fact, it was on March 23rd, 1963, they published an article called The Story of a College Football Fix. And it relayed the story. They had talked to Burnett. It had talked to the Georgia folks. They had relayed the story about what was going on there. Both Butts and Bryant quickly called the story a lie in its entirety and both sued Curtis Publishing Company, which was the company that owned the Saturday Evening Post. Now, the Saturday Evening Post was a magazine in those days and had been for, for many years. Uh, those days, a Look Magazine, Life Magazine, you may have seen some old copies of these. Uh, they were they were weekly publications, national publications that came out with things that were going on nationally uh, in the news and sports and so forth. The circulation had dropped some for the Saturday Evening Post, so they were looking to do some articles that would get some of their readership back, and so they were looking to do some expose things. And so when this fell in their lap, they decided to write it and publish it, and they called it the story of a college football fix. Bryant and Butt sued. So in the summer of 1963, the... Wally Butts trial versus Curtis Publishing uh, goes to court in Atlanta. Uh, Coach Bryant's trial, they were separate, was scheduled for a later date. So the Butts trial was going to be the, the big one that was going to take place to start with. And by the way, right before the start of the trial, uh, this wasn't admissible in court, but Wally Butts, Paul Bryant, and George Burnett, the man who heard the phone call, were all given lie detector tests. And they all passed. So the lie detector test didn't help much because according to that, everybody's telling the truth. During the trial, Paul Bryant, Wally Butts, George Burnett all testified. Uh, several of the Georgian assistant coaches testified. And basically they testified that it appeared that Alabama knew their plays. That's basically what they said. The head coach, Johnny Griffith, also testified to the same thing. Uh, the presidents of both universities testified. They even had three Alabama football players that testified on behalf of Coach Butts. They testified that, and Leroy Jordan was one of them, and I know Charlie Pell was one of them. They testified that there was nothing unusual about the preparation for the Georgia game that they didn't have a great deal of information on, on Georgia. They went by what they had done last year and what they had done in the spring game and that they saw nothing that was different from their preparation that would have led them to believe that they had a bunch of inside information or something that was um, uh, taking place. So on August 21st, the jury found in favor of Wally Butts giving him over $3 million in damages. Coach Bryant settled out of court for $360,000. So his trial actually never occurred. Curtis Publishing Company appealed. And the results went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And a lot of this discussion was about were these men public figures and are public figures treated differently than a regular citizen when it comes to libel, 
uh, because the idea is that um, if every time that someone says something negative about a public figure because he's talked about a lot, uh, does he have the right to sue over everything that happens all the time? So um, the, the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was eventually not overturned. Uh, it was held, the court case was, by a vote of five to four, interesting enough. And that happened in uh, 1967. Uh, it was really four years before the thing was finally settled in the U.S. Supreme Court. So here's the question. What really occurred in this 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 scandal? Okay, well, first of all, usually if, if a game is being fixed, it's being fixed for gambling purposes. There's They never found any proof, anybody, anywhere that Wally Butts or Paul Bryant had ever bet on the Alabama, the outcome of the Alabama-Georgia game. They never found any indication that Coach Bryant had bet on any of the Alabama games at any time. However, in later years, um, because of the Freedom of Information Act, there were some FBI documents that indicated that when Coach Bryant was at Texas A&M, that at his last season there, he had actually bet on his own team a couple of times that he had a gambling issue and a gambling problem, right? So either, number one, everything was as Burnett said. He got patching the call. He took the notes. He he knew uh, what he heard, that Coach Butts, who was bitter over his coaching dismissal, had given some inside information to Coach Bryant, right? And that it all heard, uh, it all happened. In fact, one of the things he, he talked about was that Georgia wasn't good on pass defense. Well, that turned out to be be true in the game. Namath threw the ball 15 times, completed 11 in the game for 273 yards, which was a lot of yards passing uh, for, for 1963 as they won the game uh, 35 to nothing. All right, so um, that was the belief. But the other part of that that made – made it kind of hard to figure that out was that uh, in this case, uh, Alabama would have scouted the Georgia spring game because of the fact that live scouting was perfectly legal in those days. They scouted each other's spring games. And so that Coach Bryant may not have attended himself, but he certainly sent some coaches to go do that. And they did that. And they knew from the spring game that Georgia did not have a good passing attack. And so part of the, the argument about the thing was that Coach Butts technically couldn't give Bryant, Coach Bryant much more information than he already had about the Georgia team. He might be able to tell him something about injuries or something if somebody was injured, but he certainly couldn't um, uh, give him a lot of information that Coach Bryant didn't already know because they had uh, scouted the team. All right, so the other theory here was that Burnett – heard the conversation, but misunderstood what he was hearing. That that they were talking about football, they were talking about rules, they were talking about the passing game, and that Coach Butts may have said a thing or two about the Georgia players or whatever it was, but he wasn't giving Coach Bryant any information that Coach Bryant didn't already have. And so at the end of the day, that's what the jury believed happened. Alabama was coming off a national championship. Georgia 
was not good the year before and was not expected to be very good. In, in these days and times, um, freshmen weren't eligible. Uh, surely Alabama and Georgia had probably played a freshman game. Alabama knew the Georgia players that were going to um, be eligible as sophomores that year. Uh, they had scouted the spring game. They knew who all was on their team. There was very little transfer or anything going on in those days. They knew a lot, already knew a lot about the Georgia team. Alabama was the national champion the year before, much better team in Georgia. And so it was hard for anyone to figure out why Coach Bryant would have tried to fix the game as though you would have it when everyone believed that they were going to be a heavy favorite and win the game anyway. Uh, having scouted them in the spring, Coach Bryant uh, and staff certainly had relayed the information that the Alabama team should win the game handily. So that was part of the, the issue that was going on that people just didn't seem to understand. I think the probably the jury had a hard time of figuring some of that out as well as to what would be Coach Bryant's motive uh, to get involved. And if I'm not mistaken, the tie was like a 16 to 17 point favorite, which was a lot of points in those days because most of the games had a lot of rules being different. Um, favoring the defense, it was a defensive era. A 35 points was a pretty good number of points for um a team to score. That was a lot of the reason. So either one of those two things occurred. The jury believed um, Coach Bryant and Coach Butts and their explanation of what went on. That was a scandal of the early 1960s. Georgia, Alabama. We'll see what happens with the Harbaugh scandal of 2023. Thanks for listening. This has been a minute with Coach Riggs.